the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Uh, Folks, it's time once again uh, for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always so glad when you join us. I love connecting with you right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Pete Paquette, in the new year, he's still behind the mic. Uh, Actually, it's the glass, uh, and he gets us on the air. Uh, Andrew Herdliska continues to produce the show. And uh, we open today with Randy, Randall Balmer. Uh, he is a, a professor in religion at Dartmouth College. Uh, he's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as we speak. And his book is out. It's called Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Interesting topic, Randall. How you doing? I'm fine. Good to talk to you. Randall, tell me about uh, uh, the background of this book. Why was it important for you to write it? Well, a couple of things. I guess the deeper background is that when I was in graduate school, my uh, one of my professors, my, my mentor really, was uh, in the history department. He was actually a colonial historian, but he loved sports. And he used to talk about uh, sports while we were playing in the intramural softball league in the summertime during my time at Princeton. And he would talk about the symbolism behind some of the major sports. Uh, he actually talked mostly about baseball, football, and basketball. He didn't say much about hockey, but uh, it just got me thinking. And over the years, I've been kind of mulling over these ideas. And then I guess the more recent catalyst for the book was when I was teaching at Columbia University for actually 27 years before moving on to Dartmouth. And uh, I was introduced to sports talk radio, and I just was fascinating, <laughs> fascinated that callers and hosts could sustain a conversation and a debate for hours and hours over whether or not Joe Torrey should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning. And the passion behind that uh, really intrigued me. So I, I guess those are the, the reasons I wrote the book. Uh, let me get this straight, Randall. You go to Princeton, teach at Columbia, teach at Dartmouth, uh, I mean, you've almost got all the Ivy League uh, Ivy League teams covered, right? Just about a few left. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, and I've been visiting professor at other uh, at Yale and uh, a couple other places too. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess I have. <laughs> well, your well, your uh, intro <clears throat> to everything a season, the peculiar passion surrounding team sports, and I underline the word team. Um, tell us a little bit more about the intro. 
Well, I think what I was trying to do is say this is really, I think, arguably America's new religion. That is to say, in terms of devotion and uh, offerings uh, monetarily and so forth, uh, this is where the passion has really gone in American life. Uh, and the, the kind of passion that was once devoted to faith and to religion, I say that, uh, by the way, with a great deal of uh, sadness, I think has been transferred in many cases to the athletic arena. Um, and, you know, even with myself, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I don't uh, shy away from that. But the time that I spend following the teams that I like to, to watch and, and, and to read about uh, probably eclipses uh, time that I would spend otherwise in uh, you know, uh, prayer, devotion, Bible reading, and so forth. And I think that's probably the case with a lot of Americans these days. Uh, chapter one, <clears throat> it's called it Break Your Heart, the Industrial Revolution and the Origins of Baseball. Uh, I, w- I want to hear about this. Well, it's uh, baseball really was uh, devised during the teeth of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. And what's fascinating to me about baseball, uh, two things. Uh, first of all, well, more than what two, I suppose. Uh, first, you have the mythological origins of baseball, the so-called Cooperstown myth. That is that baseball was invented uh, by uh, Abner Doubleday in uh, Cooperstown, New York, on a beautiful sunny day in 1830, I believe it's 1838, 1839. Uh, actually, there's debate about that, but it's a myth nevertheless. Uh, Abner Doubleday actually was a cadet at West Point when he supposedly <laughs> invented the game of baseball. He went on to a rather distinguished career as a Civil War general, but he never claimed in the course of his 70 plus years uh, of life that he was the inventor of baseball. Nevertheless, the myth is important because it emphasizes the the rural sort of bucolic nature of the game at a time when the industrial revolution was taking place. And so you have this odd situation where baseball really stands against industrialism. That is to say uh, baseball is the only game, only major team sport that is not governed by a clock. And the clock is really the icon of the Industrial Revolution. So baseball is trying to stand against the passage of time. You even think about how the base runner runs around the bases. He does so counterclockwise as though he's trying to subvert the passage of time. The other striking thing to me about baseball is that it is the quintessential immigrant game. And when you think about baseball over the years, over the decades, it's been immigrants who have always played and in many cases excelled at the game of baseball. The 19th century will be immigrants from places like Italy, Germany, Scandinavia, and so forth. More recently, you have immigrants from the Caribbean, particularly the Dominican Republic, but also from Asia. Now, these are these immigrants are starring in the game of baseball. And baseball, in many ways, perfectly reflects the immigrant experience. That is to say, baseball is the only game where the defense controls the ball. 
and it's the object of the offensive player, the batter, to disrupt the defense's control of the ball. He's outnumbered 9-1. to If he fails, if he fails seven times out of ten, he'll go to the Hall of Fame. There are three islands of safety out in that hostile territory. And, of course, the greatest triumph is to return home. So baseball, for me, has all sorts of uh, wonderful symbolisms. And uh, I think it, uh, it stands against the move toward industrialism in America. And, and you think about it, if you fly into any major city, Atlanta, Dallas, wherever it may be, you go over the city and you see these islands of green amid the con- concrete canyons of the city. And uh, more often than not, they're either parks or, in many cases, baseball fields. And baseball tries to stand against that. Terrific. Our guest, <coughs> Randall <coughs> Malmer. Uh, we're talking about his book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Uh, let's get to topic number two, Randall. A Great Moral Force. The Civil War and the Origins of Football. What's going on here? Football is fascinating in many ways. Football, of course, evolved from um, soccer, but particularly from rugby. And again, it it takes place, uh, the the football, as we know it today, American football, really develops at about the same time as uh, baseball, the time of the Industrial Revolution, but more particularly right after the Civil War. And football is the quintessential military game because it has to do with the conquest and the defense of territory. So, I mean, obviously, the the, uh, the quarterback is trying to move his team down to into the enemy territory. So just like the Civil War, football reflects that sort of military uh, mindset. The great... Uh, step in the evolution of football from rugby really came at the behest of Walter Camp, who was uh, both a player and later a coach at Yale. He's sometimes called the father of American football. And what he disliked about football as it was played in the 19th century is that the rugby scrum was you know, far too chaotic. And he wanted to introduce uh, more strategic possibilities to the game of football. So what he does is persuade his Ivy League colleagues finally to ditch the rugby scrum in favor favor of the line of scrimmage so that between each play, the players line up opposite each other. And he thought that this would probably diminish some of the uh, brutality of the game, although I'm not sure that's the case because uh, when you're lining up across from your opponent, you can generate momentum before you crash into a, your opponent. But nevertheless, that was his, uh, his idea. What's striking me about football is how frequently military language was used to describe the game. And it's still used to describe the game. We talk about the quarterback as the field general. Uh, we have training camps. We have scouting Uh, We have long bombs or bullet passes. We have trench warfare between the offense and the defensive uh, line. Uh, All of these are military 
uh, terminologies. And even in the places we play, Soldier Field in Chicago, War Memorial Stadium in uh, Buffalo or Little Rock, Arkansas, or even going back to the Coliseum uh, in ancient times with the Los Angeles Coliseum. Those are all war metaphors and language of warfare that is used to surround the game of football. And uh, even the national anthem and very often the military jets screaming above the uh, stadium after this playing of the national anthem was all uh, militarism. The, the thing about football, too, is that football, in order to become a kind of universal sport, as it is now, by most reckoning it's the most popular sport, had to overcome what I call the three R's region, religion, and race. So this was a sport that was invented really by the sons, the sons, the, um, the brothers, the nephews of Union Army soldiers after the Civil War in the Northeast. But in order for football to become popular, it had to shed that regional distinction. And, of course, it came down to the South. And one of the reasons that's so popular in the South is because the South is really a military culture. Mm. So football really was their game, I think, in many ways. In terms of religion, you had football being invented by Protestants, really, and the great contribution of places like Notre Dame, but also Boston College and Fordham University, is that as they developed their football programs, these Catholic sons would be able to beat the Protestants at their own game. And that's why Notre Dame is so important to football. And finally, race. And that, of course, is a rather tawdry story, as you might imagine. Uh, the efforts to integrate the game of football. There are a lot of really tragic incidents that uh, I talk about in the book um, at Oklahoma, for example, also at the University of Kentucky, where um, very often, and in fact, it happened several times, uh, African-American players who were uh, trying to integrate the game of football were um, seriously injured or even killed. But nevertheless, football did finally overcome that racial barrier, and it is now according to most metrics, the most popular sport in America. Randall Balmer is our guest, author of Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. Uh, now, Randall, when we come back, uh, we've got to take a break. Um, the next topic I want you to get into for us is Soul of a Nation, the Canadian Confederation and the origins of hockey. And uh, when you discuss that for us, then we move on to a labyrinth of wanderings. I love that wording. Urbanization and the origins of basketball. So we've got uh, some some interesting stuff ahead with Randall Balmer, the author of Passion Plays. Uh, My latest book is out. Uh, It's called Who Coached the Coaches? And over a period of about seven years, I tracked down uh, hundreds of coaches, and I asked them one question. Who was the key person in you becoming a coach? And, uh, and the book is exactly what they said to me about who the key person was in their particular life and their career. Uh, so when you order a copy, 
on Amazon of Passion Plays. Uh, pick up a copy as well of uh, Who Coached the Coaches. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Saturday Power Hour, and this is AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Folks, um, we're chatting with Randall Balmer, who's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, digging deeply into his book, Passion Plays. And as I mentioned before the break, Randall, uh, tell us about Soul of a Nation, uh, the Canadian Confederation and the Origins of Hockey. I have to say the the chapter on hockey was the one that required probably the most research for me because I I don't know as much about hockey as uh, as I do I think about some of the other sports but as I looked into the history of it uh, what I found fascinating is that hockey really evolved rather directly from lacrosse which in turn as uh, many people know was uh, originally a Native American game and there was a dentist in Montreal Canada a guy by the name of George Beers, who used to watch the Native Americans play lacrosse outside of, uh, of Montreal. And according to him, there were no boundaries on the field, and as many as 1,000 players on each team. Now, I expect that probably was an exaggeration, but nevertheless, it was a huge uh, so-called mob game. And he loved this game. He really admired the the athleticism of the players, but also the game itself. But he said, it needs to be regulated. (laughs) And what I find fascinating about this is that uh, George Beers was a Presbyterian. And as I'm sure you know, the the kind of catchphrase for Presbyterians is that they have to do everything decently and in order. So he sought to bring order to the game of lacrosse. He established the National Lacrosse Association uh, he uh, wrote a rule book. Uh, he insisted that the playing field be delimited as well as the number of players on each team, so thereby bringing order to the game of lacrosse. He also thought that Canada needed its own game. That is to say, this was at the time of the Canadian Confederation in 1867 when, in effect, Canada became um, independent from uh, from Great Britain. And he said... We need our own game. Uh, baseball is uh, the game in the United States. Uh, cricket is a British game. It's, it's too fussy. We need a, a rough-and-tumble game that reflects the Canadian character. And so he believed that lacrosse would be the game that would uh, reflect the Canadian character. Well, what happened, of course, is that lacrosse very quickly evolved into ice hockey. And there was a lot of uh, disp- a dispute among historians about where the original hockey ice hockey game was played in Canada. There's almost every town um, east of Toronto claims to be the birthplace of, uh, of hockey. And even there's a claim out in the Northwest Territories as being the birthplace of, of ice hockey. But uh, ice hockey evolved from lacrosse, and it is really Canada's game. And uh, there have been various times when that designation has been imperiled uh, 
most notably by the so-called Summit Series in 1972 between Canadian professional hockey players and a group of Soviet amateurs. And this was uh, uh, set up to kind of uh, be a theater for the Cold War contestation between uh, the West and the East, between communism and, and freedom. And uh, the Canadians went into this thinking, well, we're Canada, uh, hockey's our game here in Canada. We're going to prevail very easily in this. And it turned out to be very, very close. And finally, the series wasn't decided until 34 seconds before the end of the final game when uh, Canada finally put in a goal and uh, established itself once again as the uh, game for the whole nation of Canada. I want you to move uh, on to uh, topic four, a labyrinth of wanderings, urbanization, and the origins of basketball. Tell us about it, Randall. Well, there's, as I said, a lot of contestation about the origins of hockey in Canada. There's not much contestation about the origins of basketball. Uh, The game of basketball was actually invented in Springfield, Massachusetts, but it was invented by a Canadian a man by the name of James Naismith, who grew up in rural uh, Ontario, attended uh, college at uh, McGill University in Montreal, and then decided to study at the YMCA Training School in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is now known, of course, as Springfield College. While he was there, he was challenged by a man named Luther Gulick, to come up with a new game that would occupy young men between the baseball and the football seasons. And uh, Naismith kind of cast around for a bit, trying to figure out what that game might be. And finally, he uh, went to the superintendent of of, uh, buildings there at uh, the YMCA training school and asked for a couple of uh, boxes. And uh, the superintendent said, well, I don't have any boxes, but I got a couple of peach baskets here. And so James Naismith uh, attached these peach baskets to uh, a 10-foot pole, really the balcony at the gymnasium there in Springfield. And that became the origins of basketball. Symbolically, I think basketball is the quintessential urban game because the object is to negotiate a within a very small, constricted space without impeding the progress of others. Now, you, Pat, know this much better than I with your long experience with basketball. But that's the idea of how to score a goal, is that you kind of weave your way among the other players to uh, your particular destination, much like somebody walking down Fifth Avenue at lunch hour or Times Square in the evening or Michigan Avenue at rush hour. You try to negotiate in a very, very small, constricted space. Theologically, what I find fascinating about this is that James Naismith, like George Beers uh, up in Montreal, James Naismith was also a Presbyterian. And again, the whole phrase, doing everything decently and in order. Uh, Naismith, when he sketched out his 13 rules for the game of basketball uh, was very 
careful to make sure that there's no physical contact among the players. Now, you know as well as I that that is no longer the case with basketball. But nevertheless, you try to regulate the, the physical contacts, uh, contact among the players uh, in the game uh, of basketball. John Calvin, who, of course, is the progenitor of uh, the Reformed tradition or Calvinism, um, which is closely linked with the Presbyterian Church, talked about life as a labyrinth of wanderings. And the idea for basketball, I think, is try to is to try to negotiate that labyrinth, try to move from one place to another. Again, uh, to do so in a in a graceful way, without impeding the progress of others. The other thing about basketball is that it became popular. It was invented at a time when Americans were flocking to the city cities in huge, huge numbers. So again, this notion of a game that would replicate that urban experience, I think, uh, is, is uh, one way to account for the popularity of basketball. We've got a, <clears throat> a little over a minute left. <clears throat> Your conclusion is shut up and dribble from the sanctuary to the stadium. Give us a quick overview. Well, again, I think this is an indication that uh, the real passion in American life, I think especially for white males, and this is uh, uh, it probably it takes longer to explain than I have time, but I think that there's a sense on the part of a lot of white males that the larger world is unfair. And I think the world of sports offers this alternative universe, a place where everything is very well regulated, something that's either fair or it's foul, it's inbounds or it's out of bounds. And even if you think about the fields themselves or the basketball court, they're defined by right angles. And everything is very clear and orderly in a way that the larger world is not, at least in the perception of a lot of people, particularly white males. And... uh, I, the shut up and dribble thing. I think uh, it comes from uh, Laura Ingram uh, uh, from Fox, who uh, who gave that instruction to LeBron James and Kevin Durant, saying, in effect, play the game. Don't speak about anything outside of the game of basketball because you don't have any standing to do that. And I think that reflects uh, the attitude of a lot of fans. You think of the Colin Kaepernick situation, for example. Um, he was cheered on the on the football field as long as he stayed in his lane. That is, as long as he didn't try to make a comment about the broader society. Randall Balmer has been our guest. His book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Stay with us. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990. FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Randall Balmer, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Uh, Randall, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, we stay out on the West Coast, Western area. Uh, Dr. Don Schoendorfer. Did I pronounce that right? I hope so. He's in Southern yes, California. Good, Don. Uh, founder of uh, Free Wheelchair Mission. And the book is out, Miracle Wheels, the story of a mission to bring mobility to the world. 
Uh, welcome to Orlando, Don. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tell me about this book. Well, it's, uh, you know, I struggled with it for a while, wanting to write. People said, you got to write a book. Uh, and I said, you know, it's a, it felt like an ego trip to me. But then I realized it wasn't me at all. Uh, you know, it was God and a lot of people around me that were was wanting me to, to, to do this, uh, to get people up off the ground. And, and so if I wrote it in that perspective and, and kind of um, really amplified the parts where I, it was clear he was in my life and, and I was in a way reporting to him, then it was an easy book to write. Don, what's your background and what is free wheelchair mission? What's what's going on here? Well, uh, I'm a, I got a uh, the, the degree for, uh, in biomedical engineering from MIT back in 1977, and I was very happy going along on that path as a mechanical engineer, working for uh, products that would be in hospital use in the United States and other developed countries. And um, I, I saw a woman trying to get across the road in Morocco in 1979. Uh, using her fingernails, digging them into the dirt, trying to drag herself across the road and simply hoping that nobody would step on her. Uh, and it was just an, a, a, you know, a shocking image. Uh, what do we do about this? And no, people were walking over, stepping, not stepping around her, but not reaching down to help her. Uh, and it was like she was some kind of uh, refuge of some sort. Uh, and just walked away from it and, and, and you know, the beginning of a career and all uh, my wife was uh, beginning her career. We go back to raise a family, you know, get a house, do all those things. But that image kept on coming back to me. So uh, in, seven, in 1990, 19, uh, 2001, um, we, I figured we should do something about that. An inexpensive, durable, functional wheelchair. So we came up with a, the the phrase free wheelchair mission to give free will chairs to people in developing countries for free. Mm. Your uh, first chapter <clears throat> is simply called speed. And your second chapter is called blueprints. I want you to explain how this book opens. <clears throat> well, uh, I was, uh, as the speed part of it was, I, I wasn't content by riding a bicycle and I thought I could just build something with a lawnmower on it that could get me uh, without any effort even faster than on a bicycle, which was made out of plywood. It was, you know, just a, a very uh, primitive go-kart, you might say. And um, the second one was, um, what was it, What was your title? Uh, Blueprints. That's your, that's your Blueprints. second. Blueprints. Yeah. The second one was when I wanted to uh, have parts made for this uh, go-kart, this wooden go-kart. Some of it was steel. My father was a mechanic, was a machinist for the New York Central Railroad. And uh, he agreed to have his machinist uh, make make parts for me, but I had to make proper drawings. Uh, and they were, back then, they were called blueprints. Uh, and uh, he would have me draw a picture, and he said, Don, do you think that's going to work? It doesn't look right. And, he's, and I said, well, yeah, it's going to work. I checked it, Dad. And, you know, I was 10 years old, and, and he had, he'd come back with the part a couple of days later, but it clearly wasn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> and he made me uh, understand how hard it was to communicate properly to a machinist through the blueprints. Mm. Now let's move to the next topic. It's called style. Uh, what's that mean? 
Um, tell me a little bit more about style. Well, it's just one word. It's chapter three. You, you wrote about speed and then blueprints, and then uh, your next topic is style. And then, and then following that, it, uh, there's another interesting topic called the newspaper. Um, I think style was, uh, I, I wanted to, I, I read an article in, in uh, New York times Sunday edition when I was again, about 10 years old about, uh, uh, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology being the, the best school in the world for teaching engineering. So I, I set my goal to go there. <clears throat> and my mother said, just, well, write him a letter. Maybe you can get some information. And I did, and I never, they never got a reply, which really um, made the challenge even, deep, even deeper. So I, at that point, I made my uh, commitment that I would go to that school, MIT, and, and get a degree in mechanical engineering. And then uh, the newspaper was uh, – uh, my, my parents took me aside and said, Don, you've got two older brothers. We pretty much depleted our resources to send you to college. Uh, you're going to have to do two things. You're going to have to start saving money somehow, making money, and you're going to have to uh, start learning how to be a better student because you're just barely getting by. <laughs> and if and if you don't want to do this, it's okay. It's your choice. But I wanted to do that because I wanted to get to MIT, and I started studying hard, and I started you know, I'm, I'm delivering newspapers <laughs> at 10 years old. Uh, and I had a pretty good, uh, you, know, you know, I was making three or four dollars a week, but it's added added up, so I could at least get my foot in the door at the first university that I went to. Tell us about um, storms, and then you read a uh, chapter called Zigzag. Uh, what, what's what's uh, going on? Well, storms. Uh, I uh, I saved up enough money. Uh, uh, to also buy a, uh, a, they call it a sailfish. It's a wooden sailboat, um, and uh, I got it for I think a hundred dollars. And I lived, I grew up uh, about two blocks from Lake Erie, and uh, I just always wanted to figure out how to sail, and didn't have any other way of doing it but self-learning, which was okay. And I learned how to manage that sailfish. It's just a sailboat, sail basically a surfboard with a sail on top, and. Um, Lake Erie, which is interesting, LA, it can be very treacherous at times. It can get very windy. And uh, we'd put wetsuits on, and we'd go out into the lake and and fight the wind going away from the shore and then uh, put the uh, sail full out and just ride with the wind. Um, and uh, that was a, a very exciting ride. And we figured if we fell off the boat or the boat tipped over, we'd, the, the waves would just bring us on the shore anyway. But... Uh, one day it was so rough that the Coast Guard came out to try to rescue us, and we were just having a great time, and they thought we were totally stupid fools to go out there in the weather like that. They're hanging on with both hands with their life preservers already on. Uh, and But that was, that was, that was speed. <laughs> Tell me about uh, Laurie. You do a whole chapter on Laurie. Yeah, I, I met her in, uh, as an undergraduate at Columbia University, and I I had no social life, I'm, you know, typical introverted uh, uh, engineer. And just give me a book and leave me alone kind of guy. And uh, friends caught, talked me into coming over to a party on a Sunday afternoon and was at somebody's apartment, and uh, there she was. And uh, 
she was with a boyfriend, but I had managed to talk to her and, uh, and I just liked the way she answered questions and I liked the way she was asking questions. And I asked her if I, she would mind if I could contact her. And I, I did soon after and that was it. That was my girl. Uh, it was going to be my wife. That's a great story. Made it. Easy rider. Tell oh, us. Uh, zigzag. Zigzag. Uh, well, I didn't well, tell you about zigzag. Yeah, yeah. Was a, a, yeah tell me about zigzag. Uh, I got a, it was a, a telephone van that I bought for about $125. Just barely got it to my, my driveway at my home in Ohio. And <clears throat> It it uh, took a while to fix it up to make it roadworthy, but the uh, the steering was really terrible on it, and you actually would zigzag on the road because you had to turn the steering wheel about a half a turn to make anything any change to the steering. And so it got the name zigzag. Made it an easy rider, Don. What uh, what can you tell us? I think made it was I I eventually got into. Uh, MIT. I went to a small school in Ohio. Uh, did good, uh, but I was not coming from a competitive position to get into MIT directly uh, from a small school in Ohio. So I went to, uh, uh, to Ohio to Columbia University, and then finally uh, I did well in grades and and uh, work at Columbia and made an application and applied to MIT and. They granted me not only admittance, but a, a full scholarship for to get a Ph.D. My guest is Dr. Don Schoendorfer and his book, Miracle Wheels, Patients and Patents. And then another chapter right on the heels of that blood and sweat. Fill us in, Don. Well, well um I, I, for uh, you do you when you go to MIT, you've got to do some research. You got to do something no one's ever done before. And I, I got onto this trail of uh, trying to repair uh, uh, speech, return speech to people who've had laryngectomies. And back in the in the late seventies, that was either from smoking or before they had seatbelts, you'd collide with the steering wheel if you were a driver of a car, and you know, take out your larynx, your your voice box, and. And uh, so I, uh, I put together a team and uh, the, uh, with the assets at MIT and did research on acoustics and artificial speech and, and uh, actually had uh, – to, I wanted to test this. And uh, so I learned how to work with humans and do human tests on people with uh, laryngectomies. Uh, and then the patent side of it was uh, I, I first started off with uh, with – uh, we're a small startup company outside of Boston and doing cell, blood cell separation yeah. uh, and, and got to learn a lot about blood from an engineering perspective. And, it, it, you know, it, it, there's, it's very well understood. Blood's fairly well understood when it comes to a medical you know, situation. But what can you do with it to separate it? How can you have how do you have to handle it? How can you how can you store it and all this? So from an engineering perspective, there is a vast uh, a whole new universe of things to to understand uh, and then patent, uh, and uh, so I was very happily working for uh, a company and getting them a lot of patents. I was the engineer in the back room, and it was uh, it was very delightful. But it, there was something in it that wasn't enough, and that's where I got into this thing about 
um, wheelchairs. Don, um, let's move to the topic called Surrender and the Fool's Game. All right. Well, Surrender was uh, a lot of you. You may, Pat, you may have uh, yourself, your listeners all have had experiences with raising teenage daughters. (laughs) And and, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was really good at solving technical problems with my education, my background, my experience. Uh, My wife and I were brought up uh, in, in, you know, she was a Catholic. I was in the uh, Protestant church and, but we moved away from uh, religion. We moved away from God. Um, And uh, the issues we had with our teenage daughters, uh, which we could not solve, and the more we tried, the worse they got. And then we realized there's this idea of, you know, surrendering to God and letting him take over. And we did. Uh, and uh, with tremendous relief of, of uh, just moving past that problem. And then, um, and then to see, that sort of opened my mind to thinking, is it, is it if I surrender to God and he's helping me, and he, I can see evidence that he was, too. I mean, things were happening that I could not explain. I call them coincidences. But uh, and I said, you know, Lord, if uh, what 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 could I do? Uh, and he said, well, it's like one of these calls you get in the middle of the night. It really wasn't a call from God. But the way I explain it is, in the middle of the night, you hear this phone ring. You pick it up, and and the, and you hear this voice, Don. This is the Lord speaking, and I got some things I want to ask you. Uh, why are you wasting your time? Um, you're volunteering at church. You're trying to tutor. You're trying to mentor. You're trying to help. You know, I know you're trying to help me, but you're not using the tools I gave you. Uh, why don't you use the tools I gave you to do something for my kingdom? And, and then he hung up. Well, you know, that didn't happen really. But after a period of six months of struggling with this challenge I was in, that's what it seemed like had happened. And I'm thinking, gee, oh, what do you mean, Lord? He said, use the tools. Well, my tools are engineering and discovery and invention. And and then, well, what's the problem? Well, remember that lady back in Morocco you saw 20 years ago? Uh, what what she need? She needed a chair with wheels. My guest is Dr. Don Schoendorfer. Miracle Wheels, that's the name of the book. We've got more with Don right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Dr. Don Schoendorfer is with us. He's in Southern California. Uh, talking about his book, Miracle Wheels, the story of a mission to bring mobility to the world. Don, uh, we're in the middle of your book right now, and uh, we've arrived at this topic. It's over, and that's followed up by prototype. Tell us more. Yeah, well, it's over was uh, before this happened with teenage daughters and all that. Uh, I, I, I was uh, I had a partner. We were hot on the trail of becoming billionaires. Uh-huh. Uh, we uh, we came up with this idea of storing um, information in, from your body through a skin a patch a bandaid on your skin. 
uh, and it had tremendous advantages. It stemmed all from a discovery I made that things, uh, things that molecules that are in the blood get through the skin. They just don't look the same. And so most people, uh, most uh, scientists never thought about using them for diagnostic purposes. But once you kind of adjust the chemistry and your your te your test in the clinical test, you can see things that are going on. And um, we we came up this I got idea got plenty of patents. We're working with 3M and and uh, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and they are supporting us. And uh, we are testing this, and we could do test all kinds of things uh, through this skin patch. Uh, and great advantage, you could just stick it in the mail in a in a plain envelope and send it to a lab, and they could they could essentially put it in a little washing machine and extract the things that came through your skin. But uh, FDA uh, had never seen anything like this before, uh, and they would have to su uh, support it. And by the time we got it through the FDA, we spent all the money, and and 3M said, we're tired of it. We're not going to give you any more, and we want the patents in exchange, and that's what happened. So uh, away that idea went of becoming uh, a billionaire for sure. What's, pro uh, what's, and, what's uh, prototype and then, uh, mean? Prototype was... Uh, well, uh, I, I learned over those years that you have to have something that you can show somebody before they're going to get excited, uh, and a, a prototype. And so I, uh, I well, a chair with wheels. That's what I decided I would like to do next. And so I went to Home Depot, got some lawn chairs, went to Toys R Us, got some bicycles, took the wheels off, stuck them to the lawn chair, put some casters on it, and that was my prototype. Uh, and I showed it to the right people. You know, you can show it, uh, prototypes to the wrong people and you can get discouraged and walk away from sometimes a very good idea. But I showed it to a pastor of my church who had just gotten back from the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa. And uh, he said, Don, you don't understand this, but this is really strange. But two days ago, I was just getting on the plane and I saw people crawling on the ground. And I, I just really bothered me, just like it bothered me when I saw that group, that woman in Morocco. And he said, and then you show up at my office with this thing. It's a chair with wheels. It's perfect. Let's go. Mm. Uh, and we did. Then you write about then there were four. Yeah, uh, we were. I wanted it. I made a hundred of these prototypes, which is a really a skimpy number for a clinical trial. With you know, because before I was done, that was my career doing clinical trials, is for proving things would work for the FDA. And but that's about all I could afford. And I had them in my garage, and I wanted to bring all hundred of them to a mission. I had no experience in the mission world, uh, going to developing countries. The only thing I knew about developing countries was what I read in the National Geographic. And finally got an opportunity to go with a, with my church to uh, Chennai, India. I wanted to bring 100. It was just so many roadblocks in the way, and I could only wind up bringing four, one for each passenger uh, of um, people I knew in Southern California who would go to Chennai, India. And so we brought four prototypes of these wheelchairs to India. Uh, they were not met with uh, excitement uh, or even interest because it looked to them like it was a lawn chair with mountain bike tires on it. And it just didn't have what they would expect to have on a wheelchair. 
but we brought one out and gave it the first one away, and it was just we saw a life change. It was like a it, it literally was a miracle. The, the whole village was just ecstatic about this seeing this boy who their parents and neighbors had carried around uh, all his life in a wheelchair, uh, and and now they could make some money. Now they wouldn't have to stay home and just care for their child, and everything just started to fall and. And, and that was the very first wheelchair of the four I took to India. Mm. Tell me about the trip and then follow that up with a manual. Um, the trip was, um, you know, this probably the trip would be uh, that I, I came back with all this excitement. The people knew about what I was doing and they, and they, it, they heard through the church and they started to literally sending me money personally, to, uh, to make more wheelchairs. And I didn't want to make any more. I just, uh, I just, uh, I just wanted to get my clinical trial done, write my paper, which I was going to do and let someone else take this, uh, from there. I was going to be the inventor, so to speak. Uh, and then we wound up going to, uh, Angola. We took 43 chairs to Angola and just, uh, seeing, uh, ran, literally ran, running out of wheelchairs like the first day. And you could see how appreciated people would were to just to get off the ground. You know, imagine what it's like to crawl on the ground all your life uh, and wait for somebody to help you go to the bathroom or change your clothes or get some food or, you know, keep the dogs from, from biting you and all these things. And so I just saw how this was uh, this is going to be something uh, this was going to turn out to be something. And I knew I had to stick with it. And so. Uh, uh, Came back from, from Angola and was just all in. I, I've got to do this. It sounds like God wants me to do it. My wife was said, I'm going to go back to work. And so she wanted to do it. And I, I said, oh, I don't want to give away a 25-year career and a Ph.D. in my biomedical engineering. And, you know, and then again, you know, the, the Lord has ways of, of persuading you. Uh, and, <laughs> and he did. And that's what I that's where I went. Let's let's do this for uh, forever. Let's let this be my retirement, so to speak. Lotus Blossom and Indra, what's going on here? Well, well Lotus Blossom was the second wheelchair we gave away in Chennai, India, and uh, we met her. She was sitting on the ground in the dirt. She had borrowed clothes. Her parents had borrowed clothes, so they would she would look nice for us when we came because they. They told her parents that we'd be coming and we'll bring a gift, a wheelchair. She didn't want to tell her daughter anything about this because she she knew we probably weren't going to make it. And it was just totally disappointed her daughter. But we showed up and her name is Kimala Gali, which is in their language is Tamil. It's Lotus Blossom. And she had this smile from ear to ear. Yeah. Uh, uh, and she got outside and, and first time probably in ever, maybe her life outside of her hut. And she was so excited. She she told her mother, "Mom, I got to go back in. I've got to, uh, I've got to. Uh, I can't take this. This is too much. I'm, I feel like I'm going to faint uh, with happiness." And then another, the second, the third chair we gave away was to Indra. And actually, I didn't meet Indra. I gave it to a Catholic church, and they put Indra in a church in that wheelchair. And she got that chair, and she said, "I'm going to learn how to. I'm going to." She was in a uh, an orphanage for children with mental disabilities, but she was not. She she had no issues with her brain. It was just her ability to walk. And she said, "I'm going to learn how to be a student. I'm going to study. I'm going to go to college. I want to be something." 
And so the the, the past the people who ran the orphanage uh, agreed, and they said, "Well, okay, well, here's the book, so let's get going." And she she wound up getting admitted uh, through the mail to a school, a proper school in India. She showed up that morning with all her nuns, and this is a Catholic uh, uh, orphanage, and a, a priest was there, and. And uh, they knock on the door, and uh, people come out and said, "No, what's what are you here for?" I said, I'm, "I was just accepted through the mail to be a student." He said, "Well, there's no way we can have you a student. We never had anybody in a wheelchair before. We don't. We you can't even get up the steps." And and they were they were crying, and people were praying, and they just weren't going to leave. And pretty soon, the headmaster looks out the window and sees this commotion. He, he comes out and says, you, you know, I've never seen anybody in my whole career who wanted to learn as much as this girl, Indra, wants to learn. So I'm going to give up my office because it's right on the first floor. And we're going to let her be that school. That could be her classroom. And that was the story of Indra. I mean, uh, it, it's amazing what a, a wheelchair can motivate somebody to do when they feel that's going to be a door that opens for the rest of their life. Folks, my guest has been Dr. Don Schoendorfer. He's joined us from Southern California talking about his book, Miracle Wheels, the story of a mission to bring mobility to the world. We have a one-minute wrap-up right after this break. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Always so pleased when you have time for us. Randall Balmer was our guest in the first segment, uh, talking about passion plays, how religion shapes sports in North America. And then uh, Dr. Don Schoendorfer was with us, uh, founder of Free Wheelchair Mission, and told us the exciting story of Miracle Wheels, uh, how these wheelchairs get around the world. Uh, and they cost, what was he telling us, $96 each. It's uh, just a remarkable story about what Don has done. I hope you have a wonderful week ahead, and uh, we're back next weekend for more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And make sure you stay tuned all day long to AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Your life will be better for it. Have a great week ahead. We'll see you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.